You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. We've come off a fantastic Easter weekend here at Southwest, and we're launching into this new message series entitled uh, The Jesus Myth. You should find in each of your bulletins a a card that describes what we're going to be looking at during this season. And we're not saying uh, that Jesus is a myth, but we're saying that there are many myths and false ideas about who Jesus really is. And in this five-week series, we want to experience the life-changing truth of the real Jesus and leave the myths behind. As you know, as I continue to listen to and uh, read and, and try to keep my ear near the ground listening to what those who are younger and especially those who are unchurched have to say about Christianity, I'm continually encouraged by uh, the fact that, that many are still fascinated maybe even if they don't attend church, they're still fascinated with the person of Jesus. I think evidence of this is the number one TV show last weekend, uh, last Sunday evening, was Jesus Christ Superstar. And uh, by the way, my wife and I were doing something else that evening, and so we we actually recorded it on our DVR, and and, I, I forgot it was a live event, and it went a little long, and so I went to watch it, and uh, and I was intrigued by it, and and I got to the two-hour mark, and it just cut off, you know, and I thought, oh, no, I, and so I'm glad I know how the story ends, so, um, but but the, the truth of it was, you know, we see that many are still curious about the person of Jesus, And yet the question for us during this series is, what do you believe about Jesus? What do many believe about Jesus? One blogger I read wrote, millennials are not interested in a celestial Jesus with a permanent smile and open arms, unconcerned with the going-ons of planet Earth. We've heard about that Jesus our entire lives, and we're not buying it. One particular story in in the Bible dramatically blows this celestial view of Jesus with this permanent smile out of the water. And it's a story that we find in all four of the Gospels. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament that tell the story, the life, the teaching of Jesus. And in the book of the Bible that I encouraged you to read during the Easter season, the Gospel of John... Uh, you don't have to read too far into this, this telling of the Jesus story to find this fascinating story that's found throughout the Gospels in all four of them. It's in the second chapter of John, and we read about Jesus being at the Jewish Passover. Now, John describes actually four different Passover festivals in Jesus' public ministry, which helps us determine that his ministry lasted about three, three and a half years, his public ministry that's recorded in the Bible. 
The first one of Jesus going to Jerusalem for the Passover feast is recorded in John chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there or pull out your Bible app and go to verse 13. This is uh, now the last Passover feast that's recorded in John is actually in John 18. And if you're just curious, uh, we've listed all four of those Passover uh, references in John's gospel in your, in your notes in the bulletin. Now, the Jewish Passover, which actually uh, drew to end yesterday for those that are still uh, faithful Jews uh, observing the Jewish calendar that, that came to an end yesterday, which we shared last weekend is how we mark our calendars for Easter. It coincides with the Jewish Passover. Now, let's read this scene described in John chapter 2. Now, uh, it's a kind of a long reading, but I want to encourage you to, to just try to picture this scene, if you will, in your mind as we read it, and hang with me in this long reading, and then we're going to kind of go back through and unpack it a little bit, okay? But in John chapter 2, beginning verse 13, this is how John told this story. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem, In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers, coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered the prophecy from Scripture. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you the authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus said. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. What? they exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the Scriptures and what Jesus had said. Honestly, this is a story that some point to when trying to describe Jesus as an angry guy. And yet, before we accept the myth of Jesus always being angry with a constant scowl, raised fist, or a pointing finger, let's make some observations from this text in John and in a parallel version by another gospel writer as this scene is described from another angle. Now, specifically, let's make some observations from the various reactions that we see witnessed in this scene. So if you're taking notes, your first point would be observations from the reactions of those in the story. First of all, let's examine Jesus' reaction. The story tells us that he, he, he spent time observing all that was going on in the temple. He observed the people who were selling animals for the Jewish worshipers to be able to have the appropriate animal sacrifices. 
He also observed people king a prophet by charging people who traveled to Jerusalem from a foreign country. You see, the, the Jewish Passover was one of the Jewish feasts that, that all the faithful uh, Jewish, especially the Jewish males, were expected to travel to Jerusalem and to observe. And so they, many would travel for miles, and, and they would come in from a foreign country, and because of that, they, they would maybe need to purchase while they were there an animal sacrifice. And also, we find that there were people that would exchange money, again, making a profit, undoubtedly. Because Matthew's uh, telling of the story, we get a sense that they were overcharging foreigners on the exchange rate uh, because Jesus calls them in Matthew's gospel thieves. You know, one of the things for those of us who've traveled some is that you know if you travel to a foreign country, not only do you have to deal with the language barrier, but you also have to deal with, you know, if you go to a store or if you go to a market and you're purchasing something, how do you deal with the money? And, and uh, because I struggle even with the English language, let alone another language, I always struggle a bit to, to try to make sense of the currency. One of the things I, I love about our church-to-church partner in El Salvador is they use American currency. So even though I don't speak Spanish, when I'm at the market or at a grocery store there, uh, you know, I can look at the price on the the item, I can read numbers, and, and I can figure out if they're giving me the right change. But when I've been in other settings like Haiti, you know, uh, I, I'm just at their mercy. Well, so you see here that this is this is what was happening here. They they were taking advantage of people coming in from foreign countries, and they were robbing the people. Now, it would be easy in this in this narrative to to picture Jesus. In fact, I hear people describing this scene sometimes as describing Jesus going into some kind of rage. Instead, I see a very intentional Jesus who observed what was going on, took time to calculate a plan. In fact, I think he already had this plan before he walked into the the courtyard temples. But he even took time to make a whip out of ropes that he twisted into the, 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 actually, you know, the braided whip. I'm not sure how long that would take, but it would take some time if you think about it to take rope and and form it into a whip. This is not what an enraged man would take time to do. Jesus is very calculated. He's very intentional. How do you picture Jesus turning over the table? I brought here a a table. uh, It's a small table, but just to illustrate with some coins on it. How do you think Jesus would have handled that. You know, I, I thought about this story a lot uh, when I was a, a public school teacher. Many, many years ago when I was a much younger man and, and actually a fairly young Christian, I was teaching in the public schools. And the longest year of my life was the year I taught junior high, okay? Now, we've already dismissed the junior high students, so don't share this with them. But that was a tough year. You know, I, I taught just north of Chicago, and, and uh, it was, uh, had some inner city kids, some tough kids, and, and I was a new teacher, and so I got all the general math courses, so I got all the kids that didn't like math. And, 
and, and they already came into the classroom with an attitude, and I'm trying to teach them and instruct them. And, and actually, you know, they just, they were out of control, honestly. And um, I, I have to admit, I, I struggled with my anger. You know, I've shared before, that's, that's something I've struggled with throughout my life. And, 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 if, and I'm grateful for the changes God's made. He still needs to make more changes in me. But, but, but uh, I have to confess, there were times when I'd get so frustrated, I was even known to throw erasers, okay? I mean, I admit it. But I was really trying to wrestle with this, and I didn't want to give in to my temper. And so, so uh, I finally, I kept looking at the story of Jesus and how he, how he expressed his uh, displeasure and, and anger, if you will, toward the people that were acting not as they should. And, and so I thought, how would I live that out in the classroom? So I brought into class... Uh, back in those days, you know, we had the, the, the metal filing cabinets. Some of you remember those, okay? But, uh, but I had one of those near my desk up in front of the classroom, and I brought in a big, heavy book, okay? It was probably a math book. This is a Bible commentary. But, but one day, I just couldn't get their attention. I couldn't get them to, to be quiet. So I just quietly, I lifted up my book over my head on top of the, right above the metal filing cabinet, and I just went like that. Now, it, it reverberated a lot louder than that in the classroom. Well, they all just looked like this. I said, now that I got your attention, let's talk about some math. I was trying to follow Jesus' example. What do you picture here? I, I picture, I'm going to move this back a little bit because I don't want to damage any of Larry's uh, equipment, but, but I picture Jesus coming in, looking over the lay of the land, taking the time to make a whip, and then walking over to one of the tables, not enraged, but just very calculated and just... Now, do you think that got their attention? I think it did. I think it was very intentional. And Jesus said, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Now, to get an accurate view of the scene and how it went down, let's look at the reactions of those who first witnessed it. To, to, to look at this, let's look at Matthew's telling of this scene, a, a very similar action by Jesus and the crowd's reaction. Now, it's interesting, uh, and I have to make this com, uh, comment for those of you that delve into the Bible and how it's put together and maybe compare the different Gospels. Uh, it's interesting that John places this scene at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which would have been year one of his three, three-and-a-half-year ministry. And yet Matthew, Mark, and Luke place it during Jesus' last Passover celebration. Now, there's a couple explanations for that. Possibly, Jesus did this clearing of the temple twice. That's a possibility. Possibly, he had to do it twice to get their attention, and maybe, maybe they just recorded the different accounts of that. Possibly also the gospel writers being of an ancient time, a different time period, a different mindset. Maybe some of the gospel writers uh, wrote their telling of the Jesus story based on themes and grouping themes together as opposed to just chronology. I'm not sure which is the best way to do that, but I am convinced that both narratives are true 
and all four are true and accurate. So let's look at how Matthew describes the reaction to Jesus. In Matthew 21, verse 13, again, picking up the same scene, he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The leading priests and teachers of the religious law saw these wonderful miracles and even and heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. But the leaders were indignant. Do you notice the different reactions? The most vulnerable people in the crowd, the, the, the blind and the lame, how are they? How do they react to this story? How do they react to this action on Jesus' part? They are drawn to him. Not what you would expect if it was somebody that was out of control or, or acting in rage. You see, they're drawn to Jesus. There's less distractions in the temple court. There's less obstacles for them to get with Jesus because now he's turned over the tables, he's cleared the courtyard, and he's even driven out those bad people that were taking advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. Another group that would have been extremely vulnerable in Jesus' day were the children. How did they respond? They're not afraid of Jesus. In fact, they're shouting, praise God for the son of David. So the two groups that you would think would be afraid if Jesus was in a rage, instead they're drawn to him ever more because he's got rid of the bad guys out of the temple. But who was upset? It wasn't the vulnerable or the weak. It was the religious leaders. In fact, the scriptures say that they were angry. In fact, over and over again in the Bible, we see that Jesus was the toughest on the religious leaders of his day. Just a little later, that Passover season, Jesus had some very strong things to say to the religious leaders of his day. And as a church leader, I I take these words to heart because I don't want to fall into the same trap that they fell into. In Matthew 23, which is a a long chapter, but it has a lot of strong things that Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day. In verse 1, as he starts this teaching to them, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, "The, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. What was it that Jesus challenged and and reprimanded the religious leaders of his day? He challenged the religious leaders to make sure that they practiced what they preached. He also challenged them of saying that they were putting unfair, unbearable, judgmental demands on the people. Honestly, this is why I think Jesus was so well received by the irreligious, because they finally saw somebody standing up to those that were the religious power brokers of their day. And yet, those who were in power 
they didn't like Jesus too much. Have you ever wondered? I have. How would Jesus be received if he showed up and started teaching and preaching in 21st century America? Who would be drawn to him? Who would be ticked off by him? I've thought about that often. And I've asked myself, do I draw the same people Jesus would have drawn? And do I tick off the same people that Jesus would have ticked off? Because you see, I want to follow Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, the reason that I think some have bought into the myth that Jesus was an angry guy is that, unfortunately, too many people who represent him in our world are more like the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees than they are like Jesus. In a recent article that I read, uh, it's about a book that the Barna people uh, have recently published. And by the way, if you don't know who the Barna people are, the Barna group is this group of uh, researchers who go all over the country and, and they study different trends in our culture. They, they interview those who both go to church and those who don't go to church. And they try to get a sense of what's the read of the people and what are people thinking these days. In one of their recent surveys, I, I found it really interesting. They just showed these four images that are on the screen to a group of people they were surveying, and they asked them, which picture best represents Christianity today in your viewpoint? Okay, I don't know if you can see from your seat, but the the first picture is a a Bible with a, a finger pointing at somebody, okay? The next picture, it's harder to make out, but it's actually a guy that's holding out a hand to help someone. Then the third picture is a guy with a bullhorn you know, preaching. And then the fourth is a group of worshipers. Now, as they polled different people, and especially as they polled people that were younger in that millennial group and those that don't attend church, what do you think the majority of people, which image do you think they picked that they thought best represented Christianity as they see it today? You maybe figured it out it was the first and third image. It was troubling to me that, that how many young people view and how many unchurched people view Christianity today as somebody pointing a finger at them or somebody with a bullhorn preaching at them. You see, I think that's more representative of the people that Jesus had the hardest, strongest words toward, not Jesus himself. I think, unfortunately, far too many people have, have transferred their view of Christians today that maybe they, they don't necessarily represent Jesus to the person of Jesus. And that's why they've got this picture of him being angry and judgmental. Yet the true Jesus backed up what he taught. And he was incredibly consistent and intentional in the way he went about his life. And we're going to look a little bit later of how the, the biblical portrayal of Jesus is so opposite of this angry view that so many have. Before we get to that, I, I just want to make a couple observations about anger, okay? So, because it, it just doesn't seem like it'd be good to just breeze over this. So, let's make some observations on anger. 
It's interesting that in Scripture we see a distinction between anger and sin. One verse that points that out very clearly is Ephesians 4, verse 26. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. You see, in Scripture, we're told to make sure that we don't sin in our anger. You see, anger in and of itself is just a human emotion. We all feel it. We all wrestle with it at times. The question is, how do you handle that anger? Do you handle it in a right way, in a constructive way? Or do you handle it and does it break out in emotion and rage that ends up being destructive. That's really in many ways the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. And this scripture also says you need to deal with it. Don't let it just simmer inside of you. Make sure that even that day you put that to rest or deal with it in a constructive way. You know, that's something that Jay and I tried to keep in mind when our kids were younger. Uh, you know, when, when we saw something going on in their life that wasn't right, when we saw behavior that wasn't appropriate, we wanted to address it, and we wanted to address it quickly, but we also wanted to do it very intentional. So we even had this plan when our kids were growing up, and Jay and I even put together kind of a guideline that we were going to follow with our kids and how we discipline them, and we would always remove them from the scene. You know, if our son knocked down his sisters and was rough with them, we'd pull him aside and take him to a different room and talk to him about that. And we had a whole process that we went through. But Jane and I wanted to make sure that we didn't react in anger, but yet we allowed what we saw that was wrong to be addressed. Parents, are you sinning in your anger? Or are you allowing what you see that's wrong? Are you addressing it and making sure that you address it in, in that day? and not let it go by. Jesus did the right thing with his anger. He drove out the unjust, the sinful, the offensive, the hypocritical, and he made room for the hurting, the young, and the forgotten. In fact, as I was preparing for this message, I did a search in the Bible for the times that the Bible specifically described Jesus as angry. You know what I discovered? There's only one reference that I could find in all the Bible that described Jesus specifically as angry, that with, the, with the word that probably is the best word for anger, that for us to, to translate is the, 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 the Greek word horge. It's only found one time I could find describing Jesus. And I wanted to, to read to you that one time that I saw it and help us make some observations about why was Jesus angry here and how did he deal with it. In Mark chapter 3, this is the one time that I could find. And it's a, it's a setting where, once again, he's challenging the religious leaders of the day, and especially because they, they were so caught up in their Sabbath laws, they were so caught up in their doctrine, they lost sight of people. And in Mark chapter 3, Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger. That's the only time I could find in the Gospels where this word is used about Jesus. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, 
He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. What was it that Jesus was angry about? He was angry and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Why? Because they weren't right with God, and they were preventing others from coming to God. In fact, it appears to me that Jesus didn't get angry about what we typically get angry about. I can't speak for you, but I think about myself. What do I tend to get angry about? I get angry when something gets in my way. Something gets in the way of what I want to do. It seems to me that Jesus was just the opposite of that, and that's why I've got so much growing yet to do. Jesus seems to get angry about that which stands in God's way or blocks the way for others to come to God. Once again, possibly that's the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Now, the one thing that we can notice and observe, it seems that Jesus was the hardest. He was the toughest on those who were hard and tough on others. He was tough on on the Pharisees because they blocked the way for others to see God. He was tough on the religious people who cared more about defending their religious position than the welfare of others. Now, finally, let's, let's close with some observations about the true, real Jesus. In a moving passage that actually is recorded also in Matthew, and interesting enough, it's, it's following the same scene where we just read in Mark where Jesus heals this man with the... the, the bad hand or bad arm. And the healing of that man, we get, see this portrait of the true Jesus, how Matthew describes him. So our final observations about Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 15. But Jesus knew what they were planning. So he left that area and many people followed him. He healed all the sick among them, but he warned them not to reveal who he was. This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah concerning him. Now, listen to this prophecy, this description of the real Jesus. Look at my servant whom I've chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He doesn't use a bullhorn. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious, and his name will be the hope of all the world. You see, Matthew doesn't, well, I just lost my notes, but I'm not going to get angry about it. Matthew doesn't portray Jesus as this angry man who, who is out of control. Instead, he refers to Isaiah's prophecy of Jesus being a servant, coming with a helping hand who proclaims justice and mercy. He's such a gentle Messiah that he doesn't crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Some translations read that the Messiah would not crush a bruised reed. I I was trying to get sense of what does that mean? So yesterday when I was on a walk and praying about this message, I 
I came across a, a reed. It was, it's actually ornamental grass, I know, but it's probably the closest I could get to a reed. It was laying on the sidewalk, so I figured my neighbor was done with it, so I took it. And honestly, it was a perfectly straight reed, and I thought, okay, how am I going to use this to illustrate a bruise? But I thought somehow it's going to come to me. And so I, I brought it into the church building last night, and it's so long. When I was trying to get through the back door, I bent it. Okay, and I thought, well, there you go. It's bruised now. You know, that's kind of the way it is. You can't get through life without getting bruised, can you? And I thought, you know, it's hard to even, I mean, you can see where it's bent, but it's hard to see the bruise. But I thought, Jesus is such a gentle, caring, loving, compassionate Messiah that he sees the bruises in our lives, cares about them. And he won't crush us. You think about a flickering candle. I, I don't need to illustrate that. We've all seen candles. But I have to admit, once again, the difference between me and Jesus is that when I was a teen, I, I thought it was tough. I thought it was manly to be able to, maybe some of you guys can relate to, maybe some of the ladies too. But I thought, you know, I can, I can grab a candle that's kind of, just barely burning, I can put it out with my hands. I'm that tough. I thought, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't snuff out a smoldering wick. Instead, he breathes life into it. I can't think of a better description of Jesus to hold up as we prepare for communion, as we always do on the weekends here at Southwest. And As you think about the Jesus you believe in, the Jesus you trust, what's your picture of Jesus? Do you picture a Jesus that when you mess up, he's pointing the finger at you and upset with you and scowl on his face? Or do you have a picture of Jesus that when you feel bruised and beat up by life, he's not going to crush you? And when you feel like, man, the fire is just about out, he's not going to snuff you out but he's going to breathe new life into you. That's the Jesus I follow. That's the Jesus I believe in. I don't know what kind of week you had this past week. Maybe coming off Easter, you had a great week, and you're, you're on fire for Christ, and you're excited about your faith. And if that's the case, then during communion, just praise God that, that Jesus came to give you new life and give you a purpose in life and celebrate what he did for you to have that. But if some of the rest of you are feeling a little bit beaten up, bruised by life, realize during this time of communion that you don't have a Savior that's pointing a finger at you, but you have a Savior that wants to bind up your wounds and strengthen you and bring healing. If you feel like the light of faith is about ready to go out, realize that that when you take the bread, remembering that Jesus is real, he became flesh and blood as we take the cup, remembering how much he loves us, that he did that to bring life. Let's allow that picture of Jesus to be the one that draws us to him. And during this time of communion, Let's realize that he's alive. You know, Easter we celebrate he's alive. He's still alive today. He's here present. 
He's here to breathe life into us. He's here to bind up our wounds. Allow him to do that during this time of communion in your life. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for what a, what a great God you are. Thank you, Jesus, for what a great Messiah. Thank you that you're one that comes gentle and humble. Help us have that picture of you, Jesus, during this time of communion. And help us sense your love, your reassurance, and your strength. Help us be drawn to you, not just at this time, but every day. It's in your name we pray. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.